So the first passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do not... Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you, know, do you not know that he who is joined to the prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. This is the word of God. Very vocal member of our congregation. Uh, Won't you pray with me? Father, our sins, they are many. But your mercy is more. We long to have an encounter with you because your mercy is more. We need you, Lord. We need to understand and know and trust and experience the God who loved us first so that we can love, so that we can live in Christ and for Christ and through Christ to the Father in the power of the Spirit. Please, will you meet with us now, we pray. Amen. For those of you who've been with us uh, through our series in Corinthians, it's not going to come as any surprise to you that there's a problem in the Corinthian church. Yet another problem. First four chapters, Paul's been dealing with the problem of division, but there's another problem. Another problem in a long line of problems. This problem is extraordinary. It's shocking. It's striking. The problem is incest. The problem is prostitution. The problem is sexual immorality. And the problem is so bad that things are worse inside the church than outside the church. Verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Bear in mind they're in Corinth. In Corinth, they worship sex. And yet things are worse in the church than they are outside. The enormous challenge for us that this text presents is are we any different? Listen to the personal experiences of one pastor. He shares three anecdotes. They came to me after a conference, carrying with them a combination of heartbrokenness and anger. They wanted to know what to do about their son who seemed hopelessly addicted to internet pornography. I asked how old he was, thinking I would hear that he's in his teens or early 20s, to my shock. And speaking through his shame, the father said to me, he's eight. Second anecdote. They asked if they could have lunch with me. After the meal, they told me their story. Their son, a newly married pastor, had been having sex with a girl from the student ministry over which he was responsible. Third anecdote. He asked to counsel with me because he knew he was in trouble. He was literally stalking women in the evenings after his Bible classes. He would hang around the coffee shop and follow the most attractive woman home, of course, never letting them know what he was doing. Now, anyone in the pastoral staff here has similar sorts of anecdotes that they could share. I've heard, in the last couple of years, I've heard of a hotel that actually looks forward to a spike in their pay-per-view pornography revenues. Uh, They have an annual spike in those revenues. When does the spike come? When the youth pastors have their annual conference at that hotel. So what we're talking about is not something that's happening at some corrupt, perverted, distorted, evil fringe of society. It's happening in the church. And it's happening in this church. 
I think it would be very, very, very embarrassing for us if God were to put the names of everyone in this room who's lusted over a blood relative on this screen behind me. Daughters, sisters, uncles, fathers. Anyone who's lusted over a blood relative, your name appears up there. Or if you put the names of everyone who's visited with a prostitute. Perhaps a shorter list, but a list no doubt. Or everyone who's watched pornography in the last week. Or everyone who's watched pornography, who watched pornography last night. This is a problem in the Corinthian church, and it's a problem in our church. It's a problem because sex has such a hold over us. Sex is so powerful. It's so pleasurable. It's so desirable. How are we ever going to tame it? How are we ever going to keep it within the confines of that blessed space that the Lord has given to it, the confines of marriage? For many of us, it feels like in our culture and in our own hearts, if we're honest, we are slaves to sex. We are never going to master sex. Sex has mastered us. Now, if you feel like that this morning, I want to give you what I believe this passage gives you. I want to give you hope. Because this passage is saturated with hope. It is dripping with hope. In these two chapters, just these two chapters, there are no fewer than seven engines for change in your life. No fewer than seven pathways from sin to glory. I think there are more. In fact, when I was looking, reading it this morning, I, I think I saw two more. But there's no fewer than seven, at least seven. I've given each one a name and a tagline. The name is fancy, but it says a lot in one word. The tagline is longer, but it's clear. I'll give you both. You can take your pick. Just remember, you can be proud of being fancy. You can be just as proud of being how very down-to-earth you are, right? You can be a snob about being down-to-earth. That's how clever the devil is. He always sets his traps in pairs. Better not to be proud at all. Just pick what works for you, and we'll go along that basis. Seven pathways from sin to glory. Seven truths that set you free. Anthropology. You are human. Identity. You are in Christ. Conformity. You follow Jesus. Ecclesiology. You are part of a family. Missiology. You are a witness. Eschatology. You will inherit the kingdom. Doxology. You worship God. First, anthropology. You are human. That's going to be news to some, but it's true. What I mean is this. God is not just interested in your mind or your soul. He lays claim to all of you, including your body. Now, some might think that's obvious, but you have to listen to the Corinthians. Listen to their mottos. These were the things that were on their bumper stickers, on their license plates. You find them in chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. All things are lawful for me. It's a Corinthian motto. All things are lawful for me. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is what the Corinthians lived by. 
In other words, because I have the Spirit of Christ, I'm a spiritual person. I can do whatever I like with my body. All my appetites can and should be satisfied because they are physical appetites, and therefore there's no moral question. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food was a polite way of saying the body is for sex and sex for the body. That's what they meant. How did the Corinthians end up with that sort of thinking? Well, they got there because they were Greek. And they followed Plato. Their culture was steeped in Platonic thought. They were what we call idealists. Idealists say that reality is intellectual. The part of the human being that really matters is the mind. The mind is what is connected to God. In fact, God himself is pure mind. So it really makes no difference what you do with your body. Right? We can see how they arrived at that conclusion. What is so very interesting is that in our age of materialism, which is kind of the opposite of idealism, we end up in exactly the same place. We, are, we just come by a different road. Materialists say that, it's no surprise, that reality is material. Right? Material reality is all there is. Therefore, the mind is material. It's just chemistry. There is no God. And when you do that, when you make that move, again... It makes no difference what you do with your body. Why? Well, because your body's just chemistry. So, when a married man phones into Dr. Eve and he shares how his wife has become invalid, she can no longer have sex, what should he do about it? Well, of course, she's a materialist, so the advice she gives, and this is a true story, you have appetites. They must be met. Just go and meet them elsewhere. Worldly wisdom says if you have an itch, scratch it. Either because the body doesn't matter or the body is all there is. How does Paul respond? He applies the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Because God created you as a whole human being, because Jesus took on flesh and even now lives in a resurrected body of blood and flesh, the Lord is meant for the body. And because he is the risen king of the whole human race, well then the body is meant for the Lord. And so it matters what we do with our bodies. It matters. Jesus is king of the universe, and that means he's king of your body. That helps us. It helps us to live an integrated life in the light. Jesus is king over my mind, yes, king over my soul, yes, but also king over my body. There is no part of me that lives outside of his lordship, just like there is no part of your day or night that exists outside of his lordship. Because the devil wants us to devote certain parts of our human being and certain times of the day or night to the darkness. And so he confuses our understanding of what it means to be human. He wants us to compartmentalize things so that we are holy here on a Sunday. But on a Saturday night, well, another story entirely. If we have a biblical anthropology, we know that the soul, the mind, 
and the body, all of it, is meant for the Lord. So that's anthropology. Second, identity. You are in Christ. Chapter 6, read from verse 9 with me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How does Paul promote sexual purity? How does he get the Corinthians to stop sinning? Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't give them a list of rules and say, keep these. And he doesn't give them a list of forbidden practices and say, don't you dare. What does he do? Well, he gives them a list of forbidden practices and he says, this is what you were. But this is no longer who you are. You see, gospel living must always flow out of gospel identity. What you do must and will flow out of who you are. This is an identity ethic, and it's one of Paul's favorite ways for describing the Christian life. When you break a rule like don't watch porn, and you break it repeatedly, you end up thinking, I just can't keep this rule. I'm a porn addict. It's who I am. And so your identity as a porn addict trumps the power of your don't watch pornography rule. And it's obvious. It's obvious that it will because identity is internal to who you are. It's who you are. The rule is external. It's out there. And of course, there's more power in who you are than in some rule laying claim over you. Do you see that? But Paul says, when you have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus and by his Spirit, well, then you've been transformed from the inside out. So it's no longer about keeping an external rule. It's about who you are on the inside, in the depths of your being. And if you are in Christ, your primary identity is child of God. That's who you are. That's how loved you are. Right down at the very bottom, in the pits of who you are. That's the truth. Child of God. Infinitely beloved child of God. Now when we see that, porn is no longer who you are. It's something you do from time to time when you are living in denial of who you really are. C.S. Lewis says it like this, The old ego has been turned around, reconditioned, made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits your will. It is your will. All your time in belonging to him belongs also to you, for you are his. 
Your identity as a child of God is the will of God. That's what God wants. He wants you to be his child. Your denial of that identity when you watch porn is the will of man. So in that moment, it's your will against God's will. God says, you are my child. In that moment, you're saying, no, I'm not. Tell me something. In the long run, who's going to win that argument? I hope it's obvious. Now think about your sexual impurity in all its ugliness and shame for just a moment. I'm sorry to take you there, but think about it. Paul says, that's what you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And now, child of God, go and be who you are. Anthropology, identity, conformity in the third place. Conformity. You follow Jesus. In the first part of chapter 6, we never read it, but um, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians because as believers, as beloved children of God, they are taking one another to have their disputes resolved in secular courts. And so in 6 verse 7, he says to them, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See, Paul thinks it's better to lose your money and your reputation than to publicly disgrace the gospel in this way. And when he says, why not rather suffer wrong, who does he have in mind? Only one person. The Apostle Peter sums it up beautifully in his first letter, chapter 2. He says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We are to follow Christ. We are to conform our lives to the pattern of his life. The world says food for the stomach and the stomach for food. My natural appetites must be satisfied. Christ says, my food is to do the will of my Father. Now, who are you going to follow? Perhaps a better question for us, how are we ever going to follow Jesus? We need to remember where he's leading us. Where does he lead? He leads to the cross, first and foremost. He leads us to the cross. And the cross is more than just an example to follow. The cross is what makes following possible in the first place. By dying and rising for you and sending his spirit to make his home in you, Jesus makes you into someone new so that you can follow him. You see, you can't split conformity from identity. You can't split the example of Jesus' life and death from how his life and death has saved you and made you new. You can't split those things. If you try, if you try and just follow Jesus' example, well, then his pattern of life is just going to become another external rule for you to keep. 
and one which you will repeatedly break to your deep discouragement. But if you first see him as the Savior who made you and set you free, well then following becomes an act of love and worship and adoration, and it's a joy to wake up every morning and try and expend yourself following the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you are not saved by following the example. You are saved by the example himself. Anthropology, identity, conformity. Fourth, ecclesiology. You are part of a family. You're part of a family. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Not only had the Corinthians tolerated and accommodated incest, they were actually boasting in their freedom to do so. Now, we may think of sexual immorality as a very private affair. And in fact, that's most often how we do think of it. But it has enormously public consequences. Paul compares it to leaven. So, because yeast wasn't very common in those days, they didn't have access, easy access to yeast. Whoever did the baking in the household, what they would do is they would take uh, part, of the, part of the batch, they would put it to one side, and they would let it ferment. And then next week's dough, they would take next week's dough, and they would add the fermented leaven to next week's dough. And then that would ferment the whole batch. So that's how leaven worked. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was more than a spiritual occasion. It was a health and safety provision. Because at that point, you would take everything out. You'd clean it all out. Old dough, new dough, you'd clean it all out and you'd start again. Paul's point is that it only takes a little leaven to ferment the whole batch. It's the same with sin. Especially sexual sin and a hard, unrepentant heart. See, that is a powerful chemical mix. And it will spread quickly, very quickly, through the whole batch. That's why Paul wants this man out of the church. And let's make no mistake about that. He wants him out. He says it four times in one chapter. The last time he says it, he uses these words, purge the evil person from among you. That is strong language. See, we think Christianity is about being polite. We bump into that language. It irks us a little bit. Paul takes our holiness seriously. Why? Well, because Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for our holiness. And if we tolerate willful, stubborn, unrepented sin in our midst, it will spread and it will contaminate the whole family. So what's the antidote? Chapter 5, verse 2. You are arrogant, Shouldn't you rather mourn? Instead of, more, uh, instead of boasting, there should be mourning. There should be profound grief. The kind of deep, heartfelt grief, mourning, that leads us to repentance. Now, there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to that kind of mourning. I'll let you think about which one it is. There's a beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount dedicated to mourning. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. It's the one true response to the goodness of God on the one hand and the catastrophe of our sin on the other. There's only one response. It's mourning. 
It's grief. And if it's genuine, it will lead us to our desperate need for Christ. Chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump as you really are. You hear the identity ethic there? As you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. True mourning and repentance opens up a pathway to restoration. Sexual immorality doesn't have to end with someone being expelled from the community. That's only in in the extreme case where there there is hardness of heart, where there is unrepentance, a lack of repentance. And even when someone is expelled, the ultimate goal is still their salvation. It's not a punishment. It's an act of love with the hope that they are saved. That's what chapter 5 verse 5 says. This man must be expelled for the sake of his salvation. But if we take the Bible seriously, if we work hard at not pretending, not projecting, we've got our act all together, not holding up some sort of mask for one another. If we are honest about our sexual sin, if we confess it to one another in the way that 1 John calls us to, if we are mourning it together, grieving over it, if we are taking it to Christ, if we are reminding each other of the gospel, then we won't bring the leaven of our sin into contact with the rest of the batch. In fact, it's not only sin that functions like leaven. The opposite is true. Gospel living, holiness, functions like leaven. That's why Jesus compares the kingdom of God to leaven. The main lesson here for us is that for better or for worse, we are connected to one another. There's no escaping that. Either you can try and privatize your sexual sin and keep it in the dark where it will grow, it will ferment, and eventually contaminate the whole family, or... You can apply the gospel to your sexual sin, confront it, mourn it, confess it to one another, take it to Jesus. And that too will spread through the whole family. One spreads like a virus, the other one like a vaccination. For better or for worse, we are connected to one another. And that connection in Christ is both a negative and a positive motivation in our fight against sexual sin. So there's anthropology, identity, conformity, ecclesiology. Fifth, missiology. You are a witness. Chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or Uh, and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Do you see the principle? You can't, we cannot associate with brothers or sisters who are unrepentant in their sin. But we must associate with sinners on the outside. 
Gordon Fee says it like this. He says, the only way the Corinthian church can be a viable alternative to the world is for them to be in the world, but not of the world. You see what he's saying? You can't be an alternative if you're in the world, but you're of the world. You're just an extension of the world. How are you an alternative? We have to be in the world, but not of the world. We are set apart to be holy and different to the world for the sake of our witness to the world. Sin completely undermines that witness. I don't need to tell you that the number one criticism of church from those outside of church is that we are hypocrites. We preach one thing, we practice another. And within the church, there's often a bit of a division between those who care about the lost or claim to care about the lost and those who claim to care about holiness. There's often some sort of a little bit of tension between those two groups. Those who claim to care about the lost, those who claim to care about holiness. But this passage is teaching us that the more we truly love the lost, the more we truly love the lost, the more we will love and pursue holiness because it is holiness that makes us different and attractive to the outside world. We don't become the world to reach the world. We become who Christ has made us. That'll make us attractive. They will know you by your love. Sixth, anthropology, identity conformity, ecclesiology, missiology, eschatology. You will inherit the kingdom of God. Eschatology. This one's uh, closely linked to identity. It's another one of Paul's favorites. So chapter 5, verse 5, mentions the day of the Lord. 5.13, God's judgment. 6.14, our future resurrection. 6.9 to 11, those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Future tense. Where you are headed is closely linked to who you are. Where you are headed is, in one sense, your future identity. And our future identity, our destination, is as heirs of the kingdom of God. We stand to inherit the universe. Just let that sit for a moment. Now let's pretend that we actually believe it's true. What will that do to your behavior? If you are going to be a king or a queen over the whole universe, and it's guaranteed, what will that do to your sexual behavior? See, if this life is all there is, then instant gratification makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, Paul himself says it in the same letter to the Corinthians. He says, look, if we're not headed for eternity, if this life is all we've got, well, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if I'm going to have the run of the whole place, the whole universe, forever, if that's true of my tomorrow, I'm not going to scream around today in some sort of panicked frenzy trying to squeeze every last fleeting pleasure out of this life before they throw me on the compost heap. See the difference? If you're on your way to a seven-course meal at a five-star restaurant you're not going to stop at kfc on the way right 
If I know I'm next in line in the royal family, I think it's Charles, I'm not going to spend hours queuing outside Buckingham Palace hoping to get on the tour. If you know that unimaginable, unimaginable ecstasy is yours tomorrow, well, you're going to lose interest in the cheap thrills of today. We can forego sexual indulgence for the sake of obedience and love because we are headed, we are headed for infinitely better things. Finally, doxology. You worship God. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Let us celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Did you hear the language he's using there? Have you ever thought of the Christian life as a festival? Your life is a feast celebrating who God is and what he's done in Christ Jesus. Your holiness is not some sort of grim chore. Sexual purity is not some sort of sackcloth and ashes. It's not a fast. Your sexual purity is not a fast. It's a feast. We're looking at it the wrong way. Sexual purity is a banquet. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of who Christ is and what he's done. It's recognition that with the Holy Spirit living in you, your body becomes a temple. Your body becomes a temple. It's a place of worship. And when you keep yourself pure, you shine with the glory of God. You shine. The world scoffs at our purity we know it's radiant with the glory of God. You see, God is not just calling you to turn away from sex. Danger. Keep away. Sex is bad. No. He's inviting you to something so much richer and deeper. He's calling you to himself. It's a call to the highest happiness there is. And when you answer that call, you give him his glory. John Owen said it like this. There is no more sacred truth than this, that where Christ is present with believers, where they live in the view of his glory by faith as it is proposed to them in the gospel, he will give to them at his own season such intimations of his love, such supplies of his spirit, such holy joys and rejoicings, such repose of soul in assurance, as shall refresh their souls, fill them with joy, satisfy them with spiritual delight and quicken them to all acts of holy communion with himself. We will be so deeply satisfied with the Lord Jesus that holiness will be an act of joy. So there it is, seven, seven roads from sin to glory. Think of them as seven cords of God's love wrapping around you and pulling you home. Just from this one passage, there's so much more for us. We found these seven in this one passage. You are human. You are in Christ. You follow Jesus. You are part of a family. You are a witness. You will inherit the kingdom. 
you worship God. Now we needed to say those seven things just to say this one thing. Look at how good our God is to us. Look at how good he is to us. Look at how many resources he gives us in our sin. Look at how much he loves us. How much he wants the best for us. You know, I think for the first time as I was grappling with this passage, I think for the first time I understood what it means when Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you see what he's saying? My grace is enough. He's talking about all this. Or when he promised that we will never be tempted beyond what we can bear. It's not that temptation isn't strong. It's that in Christ, with all that he's given us, we can be stronger. Sex is powerful. It's desirable. It's pleasurable. But God is more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good gift of sex. We are so sorry that we have turned it into something corrupt, into something we worship instead of you. Help us confess our sin. Help us to mourn over it, Lord. Help us to grieve it. Give us soft, repentant hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for setting us free from our slavery. We are free. Keep us, deny, keep us from denying our freedom, Lord. Spirit of God, remind us of who we are in Christ. Remind us of where we're going. Show us the Father through the Son so that we can worship you and you alone. Amen.